This is Gordon Vernick with Jazz Insights. Today, I would like to continue with instrumental versions of the great jazz standard Loverman. In a previous show, we looked at five different singers, female singers, and their amazing interpretations of that particular song. On this show, I would like to look at alto saxophonists' versions of that song. And it's really interesting, as I was looking through different versions, instrumental versions, I found that it had been recorded by a lot of instrumentalists, uh, pianists, guitarists, trumpet players, tenor players. But I would say the majority of the instrumentalists were alto saxophone. I started thinking, well, why would they be alto saxophone players? Um, Lover Man is really suited for a woman's voice, and the alto saxophone really kind of falls in that same range of, I would say, a majority of female jazz vocalists' voices. So we're going to start with one of the most famous, but also one of the most painful versions of this song, and that was recorded by Charlie Parker in 1940, I believe it was 1946, in Los Angeles. On this particular recording date, um, they recorded three or four songs, and Charlie Parker was ill. He was suffering from substance abuse withdrawal. He was quite ill. It's amazing that he was even able to make this recording date. And uh, they started with a few songs. This Again, this was on the Dial label, and they decided to do Lover Man. And so we're going to pick it up at the beginning. And Parker doesn't even play the first four or five measures of the song, comes in the middle. But it's an amazingly emotional version that he plays. And it is, is as I said before, it, it's really painful, but it, it's a painful song. So these two things really work hand in hand. This is Parker's 1946 version of Lover Man. Now, that particular record was issued on a 78, so the record could only be really about three minutes long, so it's just about enough time to state the melody once, and then I believe the trumpet player was Howie McGee comes in and finishes out the recording. So this is not part of an album. It was a, a three-minute 78. All the subsequent recordings we're going to listen to were released on 33 and a third LPs, which meant that the recording could be longer, so the artist would probably play the melody once through and then take another course at improvising through the 
song. But we're not really interested so much in the improvised chorus. What we're really going to focus on is the initial chorus and how the saxophone players embellish it and change it because that's really what the horns do. I mean, they're going to state the melody, but they're going to take a lot of liberties. And you'll hear parts of the melody played as written. And then um, as we listen to some of these other artists, I mean, they just really go off and, and, and put these incredible embellishments into the performance. The next performance of that song is from 1953, and this is a live performance. It was kind of hard to find of Lee Konitz, great alto player who played um, on Miles Davis's Birth of the Cool. It was recorded in Los Angeles at a very famous nightclub called The Hague. And this is where um, Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan first started to play together about 1953 and 1954. And this is a live version. It's even more unusual. So you can hear some glasses clinking in the background of Lee Konitz, the great alto player, playing Loverman. Now, this version is not nearly as intense as Charlie Parker's, and he has a much different sound, often associated with the West Coast cool style, but Lee Konitz was an East Coast player. So let's check out Lee Konitz's version of Loverman, 1953, recorded live at The Hague. If you were paying very close attention to that recording, you'll notice there was no pianist on that date, and that was that was Jerry Mulligan's and uh, Chet Baker's quartet, and they were very famous because they omitted the piano. So you can really hear the full spectrum of Konitz's sound and playing because there's no piano accompaniment. All you hear is Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker kind of weaving these contrapuntal lines behind him. Fantastic version. Let's move on to 1955 with a Jackie McLean version. Uh, remember Jackie. Jackie McLean was really comes out of the Charlie Parker school of playing, very much reminiscent of his sound and his improvisational style. So in 1955, Jackie McLean was still playing very much in the Charlie Parker style. Now this particular version is, I would say, ominous. Um, it starts with an introduction played by the pianist in a minor mode, which is really gives it that kind of very melancholy, sad sound. And his version is very different from Lee Konitz's. This is Jackie McLean, 1955. Thank you. 
Now this song can be performed in any key. Charlie Parker played the song in the key of D flat, which is a little bit on the low side, so his notes are gonna be down here. Konitz records it up in the key of F, so his notes are gonna be higher, just like the inflection of my voice. The higher the key, the brighter the sound. Jackie McLean also recorded the song in the key of F, again, a brighter key than D flat. So it's really interesting to um, look at the different keys that these great musicians perform this song. The next version is from 1957, and I have to admit, is probably my favorite, my personal favorite version of this, and it's recorded by Cannonball Adderley. This is early in Cannonball's career, I, I believe right before he joined Miles Davis's group. Cannonball recorded the song twice on this particular record, which is called Cannonball en Route, which is one of his early records on Mercury. Then later in 1960, he recorded it live in Stockholm with uh, Miles Davis' um, sextet. Cannonball has just the most amazing sound and technique, and his version is really bubbly, and there's a there's a kind of a sense of humor to his playing and just kind of this playful attitude in his playing that really comes through. And he also plays the song in the key of F, again, the brighter key, as opposed to the lower D flat, which is a darker key. So let's check out Cannonball Adderley, 1957. Love our man. So in all the examples that we've heard today, you can hear that the saxophonist plays the melody but takes a lot of liberties with it and is constantly referring back to the original melody and then inserting these improvised phrases in between. I mean, it's a ballad, so the improvisers are able to um, kind of take these little excursions away from the melody and come back. Fantastic recordings. And the last one we're going to listen to was done in, somewhere in the mid-1960s. I couldn't quite find the exact date, but it's recorded by one of my favorite saxophone players. His name is Sonny Stitt. Sonny came up in the 1940s um, with the bebop musicians originally started on alto saxophone and had been compared favorably to Charlie Parker and I, I think that he he didn't want to be referred to as the new bird of the new Charlie Parker so he took up the tenor saxophone and he's one of the few saxophone players who can play both alto and tenor and you really can't tell which instrument is his uh, main instrument generally an alto player will play the alto or a tenor player will play the, the tenor and they generally don't switch but he's one of the few that could do that and again this recording was done with an organ trio I believe it's Jack McDuff playing organ. Mid-1960s recording. Sonny Stitt, very smooth, a great interpretation, and amazing technique. So I believe more than any other saxophonist, Sonny combines everybody who came before him into this very original and beautiful sound and wonderful approach. So this is Sonny Stitt, our last version of Loverman, mid-1960s.
This has been Jazz Insights with Dr. Gordon Vernick. You can visit me on the web at gordonvernick.com and facebook.com slash jazzinsights. Jazz Insights is a production of WMLB AM 1690, the voice of the arts in Atlanta. <laughs>